millions of Christians face intense persecution and risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. Vom Oz Radio supports persecuted Christians, giving a voice to the testimony of those who have been denied a voice. Our programs inform and encourage Christians in Australia and around the world to mobilize and to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecuted. Welcome again. This is Todd Nettleton. We have a very special opportunity this week to catch up on a situation that is literally developing almost even as we speak and help you understand something you're seeing in the news, what it means for our family members, for our Christian brothers and sisters. We're going to talk about what's happening in Sudan, and we have an absolute expert to help share with us Brad Phillips is the founder and president of the Persecution Project Foundation. They have been working in Sudan since 1997. They have partnered with the Voice of the Martyrs since 2002, a lot of years. Brad, thank you for being our guest. Welcome back to Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you, Todd. It's great to be here. It's great to see you also. And I want our listeners to understand, we are recording this on May 16th. So it is one month and one day after fighting broke out in Sudan. And so how has the fighting affected Christians? And I think that's, for our audience, that's the people we want to yes. pray for. That's the people we want to lift up. What What's happened to Christians in Sudan in the last one month and one day? Yes, that is a great question. And uh, of course, it's something that we're very concerned about together with VOM. There is a large community of Christians in Sudan, and perhaps the largest community of Christians comes from the, the community known as the Nuba community. And there are more than 6 million ethnic Nubans that are in Sudan. You know, you had two indigenous groups in Sudan are the Nuba and the Nubian. And among the Nuba, the first convert was recorded uh, sometime between 1917 and 1922. And in the last hundred years, there are now more than three million Nuba who identify as Christian. Wow. And out of a population of six million Nuba, uh, Sudan has about 40 million people. Uh, we're not speaking of South Sudan. We're speaking of the Republic of Sudan, which lost— uh, about half of its geography in 2011. Among those 6 million Nuba Christians, half of that population had to flee the Nuba Mountains in the last couple of decades because they were the target of bombing and killing and, and attacks by this Islamist regime. And those 3 million or so Nuba fled to regions like Khartoum, Omdurman, Bari, Gadarif, Port Sudan, El Obeid, even Darfur. And out of those three million that fled the Nuba Mountains, more than a million of those are in Khartoum itself. So half of that population, probably 50 or 60 percent of ethnic Nubans identify as Christians. That's the reason why historically they've been the target of the worst persecution in Sudan. They are affected by what's happening right right now in Khartoum in, in, in many ways. We could spend hours unpacking exactly what's going on, but but can you give us kind of a 30,000-foot view of why, you know, again, one month and one day ago, fighting broke out. Yes. What happened? What, what brought that about? Uh, it seemed like a surprise for a lot of people, but it wasn't really a surprise. The regime that is still holding power is an Islamist— regime that has its roots in the Muslim Brotherhood, 
this National Islamic Front, National Congress Party, which grew out of the Sudanese Muslim Brotherhood, which grew out of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. And they've been the source of these policies of Islamization and Arabization, which are the source of, of persecution against the church. In 2018, Sudan had essentially become a collapsed state. There was a bread crisis and a fuel crisis, and people went to the streets in December 2018. And after a few months of pressure in April of 2019, Omar al-Bashir, who is an indicted war criminal, was removed from power. And that sounded like really good news. I remember. I, I remember and the Everybody celebrated. Everybody was hopeful that change was coming. Unfortunately, the two individuals who replaced him were cut from the same bolt of cloth, so to speak, as, as Bashir. Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who was a lieutenant of Bashir, and a man named Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hameti. And both Hameti and Burhan were henchmen of Bashir. Um, with their own bloodstained past. It was Burhan, who comes from the same ethnicity as Bashir, who was sent by Bashir to go and equip and arm and fight alongside Hameti in um, war crimes and genocide, not only in Darfur, but in the Nuba Mountains. Burhan was installed by the Islamic establishment, the same Islamic establishment that was behind Bashir, put Burhan into place. But Perhan was able to sell to the world that he and his colleague Hameti were going to be the midwives and the shepherds of transition to democracy and religious freedom even. And because the cries of the street were not just for bread and fuel, there were cries for separation of religion from the state, uh, an end of Sharia law. The same cries that the Intifada of 1983 made that led to a different transitional military council were the cries of the street in 2018 and continue to be the cries of the people in Sudan up to now. And, and uh, the promise, yeah, after Bashir was overthrown, the promise was in three years, yes. we're going to have free and fair elections, we're going to transition yes. to a civilian-led democracy. Yes. Obviously, that didn't happen. Yeah, there were many timetables. Um, there were timetables that continued to be pushed and missed and, and so on. And uh, they went from a transitional military council to, in August of 2019, they established a sovereign military council. And to no surprise, the leaders of the sovereign military council were the, were the people who had been the leaders of the transitional military council, which were basically Islamist Muslim right. Brotherhood. People who had worked with yeah. Bashir during the 30 years that he was in charge. Yeah. And so without going into too much depth, but how did, that, how did those events bring us to where we are today, I think is where you're, what you're asking. Hameti and Burhan were partners, and they had worked together, and they had a, a bloody uh, history together. But they come from two different ethnic groups, two different backgrounds. They're both Islamists, but one, on the one hand, was the former Janjaweed, Rezagat, nomad, camel herder. And the other was from the ruling elites in Sudan, the Northern Nile River Arabs, who are Nubian, uh, Shagia, Ja'alin, Dungalawi, who have been ruling Sudan, Sudan since uh, the British left in 1955. Burhan actually brought Hameti and tried to use him in the same way that Bashir used Hameti, which is to, to divide, but this time not to divide opposition outside Khartoum, but actually to divide opposition that existed within the SAF, because the SAF, the Sudan Armed Forces, is ruled and led by officers who all come from this Islamist Muslim Brotherhood, Northern Nile, Riverine Arab 
elite background. And, and all of them have ambition. And all of them would like to push out Burhan and take his seat. And he knew that. So he brought Hameti. And in fact, he had instructed Hameti's forces on the 15th of April 2019, when Bashir was deposed, to guard key installations throughout Khartoum and Bari and Omdurman, but, you know, the presidential palace, the military headquarters, those are in Omdurman, which is a twin city of uh, Khartoum. Khartoum's divided into three cities. He had put them all there. And what happened was in October 2021, there was what they called a coup. Uh, I find it funny to call something a coup when the person who orchestrates the coup was in power before the coup and is in power after the coup. But they called it a coup. <laughs> right. And Hameti was part of the coup. But it was at that time, in response to the international community, Hameti put his finger in the wind and realized that he could have a chance maybe to supplant uh, Burhan because people were unhappy with this coup. And so he publicly said the coup is a mistake. And he publicly said, uh, we're not moving fast enough to democratize and all these kind of things. He said a lot of good things, even though he himself was the orchestrator of terror on that very day, on the week before, the month before, the year before, 10 years before. But he was very clever in, in saying those things. And you began to see um, the writing on the wall of a rift between these two men who were sharing power. And it turns out that Hamedi's force, the RSF, which started out as the Janjaweed, um, represented 40% of the Sudan Armed Forces. But they weren't under, an, uh, under the, the command of Burhan, who's the commander-in-chief. They had their own independent command, so they were acting as an independent army. So there were, the pressure started to build, not only from Burhan, but from the outside world, saying, hey, when are you going to have a unified army? Now, this had nothing to do with the demands of the street or why people had a popular uprising. This just had to do with mostly some of the investors in the establishment, like the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Egyptians, wanting to see a unified army. And so Burhan began to ratchet up the pressure saying, hey, you need to come under my command. And Hameti, being the clever guy that he is, said, well, General, uh, as soon as you remove all of the illegal NCP officers, who are Muslim Brotherhood officers from this illegal former National Congress Party, from their positions in the SAF, then I will integrate my force, which could never happen. So at that time, actually in January of this year, Burhan went to his base in Shendi to visit those riverine Arabs, that community, elite community that has been ruling Sudan really since the Turks. And he told them, hey, we have a threat. There's a new threat. And following from the playbook of his predecessor, Omar al-Bashir, he funded and armed and created three new militias, the most prominent one of them, the North Shield Force, coming out of Shendi, as a check against the threat of Hameti. Now, Hameti's forces being embedded all around the capital city took that as a sort of writing on the wall that their days were numbered. The Egyptians also arming Burhan, sending aircraft, sending troops, and so on. And as the presence of the Egyptians increased and other indications, uh, at some point on the 15th of April, Hameti decided to make the first move. And so the war broke out. And what we've seen is that both of these guys are determined. It's a full-on blitzkrieg. They're determined to obliterate each other. But at the same time, there's a lot of opportunistic killing and targeting of Christians, especially. We've seen attacks on different churches. We've seen an uptick in 
assassinations by snipers. They know where Christians are living in certain communities when they're coming out of their homes. They're being killed by snipers. The whole population is, the general population is being affected by the war, but for sure, Christians are in great jeopardy, and there are two million or more Christians in war-affected areas of Sudan that are trying to figure out how they can survive where they are or how they can get somewhere uh, to safety. I'm glad you brought up the the issue of safety for Christians, and I've tried to make this point in interviews that I've done, is right now if a church is destroyed, it's not persecution per se, it's the war. You know, there was a war going on and the yes. church was blown up. Yes. If a pastor is shot, it's, oh, he got caught in the crossfire. It's not, oh, someone assassinated, someone right. martyred that pastor. Right. But that is happening. I mean, we are it, seeing it, that. It is happening, and, and we can't say when we, when we see a Christian who's sitting in front of a Christian bookstore with a bullet through his forehead, whether he was assassinated or not, but it sure looks like it. Yeah. We don't know why— his building and the church next to it were one of the first ones to get shelled, but it looks like it was intentional. And the mosque down the street was not shelled. Right. So, so those things are happening. For sure, there's a lot of destruction that's affecting the general population. For sure, there are some opportunistic, I would say opportunistic terror being perpetrated against believers in consequence of these forces. Both of these forces have made a career out of persecution and murder and rape of Christian communities. And the Christian communities, whether it's in Hadi Yosef or in Umbada or whatever, it's known where they live. Uh, we're getting stories every day. My guys are in contact with relatives and family members and church leaders and church members to the degree that we're able to communicate if someone has access through a Wi-Fi to get on a messenger or something like that. We're getting stories every day, unfortunately, of tremendous losses being experienced by the church. Uh, but we're also getting stories of incredible acts of heroism. God's people are stepping forward in the yeah. midst of this and and being the hands and feet of Christ, even as bombs are falling. There's a flood of Nuba believers that we have um, relationship with through our work who are coming back to the Nuba Mountains. They fled from the Nuba Mountains during the last 20 years to get away from bombing and shooting and persecution and hunger and all kinds of planned terror and persecution at the hands of this regime that's now fighting itself. And many of them ended up in Khartoum and Omdurman and Bari in these three neighborhoods that are the most affected in the war right now. And now they have to leave, and they're, and they're trying to make their way back to the new mountains, and they're coming on foot. They're coming by motorbike. They say tuk-tuk. They're coming by, by car. They're, they're getting in buses. And many of them have the means to do that and are finding their own way. But costs have gone up. Uh, the cost of fuel has gone up five times. Food is not available. There's no mobile network. There's no internet. Transportation corridors are disrupted by fighting. And if the corridors that are opened are controlled in certain places by the RSF and certain places by the SAF, innocent people that are trying to make their way to safety are being harassed on the way. Some are being murdered. Some are being abducted. Some are being raped. If you're a man, it's much harder than a, for a woman to escape because they assume that you could potentially be a combatant. So they pull you out of the car, out of the vehicle. They kill you on the spot or they abduct you and they force, forcibly conscript you into their side. This is happening every day. Women and, are being and raped. And you're going through checkpoints 
from one side and then yeah. up the road a passage, checkpoint pass, from the other passage side. Passageways that, you know, let's say there's a distance of six hours, maybe it takes three days. Wow. Or there's a distance of 10 hours, maybe it takes three days, and you have two dozen checkpoints along the way, and you don't know if you're going to make it. But those are the people that manage to get transport. So many other people are stuck. Many people are trapped inside of their homes. If you are able to reach them, you can hear the noise in the background. And there's certain times of the day where the fighting is more intense than others, usually in the morning, for example. And during those times, people may be lying under the kitchen table flat on the ground because of bullets coming into their house. And they hear the shell landing on their neighbor's house. And then they go outside and they realize that five of their neighbors are dead in the rubble. Um, one of the kids goes out looking for food and doesn't come back. And then a couple days later, they go out looking for him and they find his body in the street. We're getting that story every day. I got that story today from one of the pastors that we work with, uh, his nephew. He was helping uh, rescue other people. And he went out looking for the resources to help get some people onto a bus, and he was shot by a sniper. Now, whether it was incidental, accidental, or intentional, God knows, but they have snipers, and the snipers are located in certain communities. These communities are all occupied by Christians, for example. On the positive side, uh, we're hearing stories of people escaping. People are getting out by every different means. Some people are using all the resource that they have, selling everything that they have to rescue other people, elderly people, children. Wow. What is life like in Khartoum at this point as far as is there any food to – like if you go out yeah. searching for food, is there any to be yeah. found? If you need you know, gas, there, there, is there, there any – There is – in Sudan, there are different communities. There are more affluent communities. There are poor communities. Most of the people that we serve are in the poor communities. You know, They don't have – $20 among their whole family of seven people so that so they can't afford $120 for a bus ticket that used to cost 10 for one person. But then there are other communities of people that have more resources. But it doesn't matter now. Now everybody's equal. It doesn't matter if you have money or you don't have money. The banks are destroyed. You can't get into the bank if you have money. If you have something under the, under the mattress, you, maybe there's nothing you can buy. They destroyed the factory that makes the food. So people are are struggling to find every kind of basic resource to survive, whether it's food, water, and medicine. So many stories of people who are dying inside of their homes because they're afraid to come out. They ran out of food. They ran out of water. They died. They ran out of medicine. They're a diabetic. They died. Other people, they went out of their home to get those things. They died. And then we have stories uh, from our community, from our church, of people that are actively going down and looking for people that they know and looking for communities that they know and bringing them food, bringing them medicine, bringing them water, getting them bus fare to get to the bus. In spite of the shells, in spite of the snipers, in spite of Deferring all of the, the opportunity and the choice themselves to escape wow. because they would prefer to stay behind and assist people that they know otherwise will not make it. Wow. Is there a solution? Is there is there any pathway you see to, other than one side yeah. completely obliterating the other yeah. side and ob obliterating the country in the meantime? Yeah. Well, Sudan has been a collapsed state for more than a month. For more than four years, it's been a collapsed state. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people invested in trying to keep the establishment on life support. The Saudis, the Egyptians, the Emiratis most notably, but many others. 
it was the European Union that funded the most notorious human traffickers in the name of fighting human trafficking, which was the John Jaweed, the RSF. They gave them hundreds of millions of euros in the name of fighting trafficking when they knew that these guys were human traffickers who were selling little boys to the Saudis to fight in Yemen. So there's a lot of people invested in bad things. We don't know the outcome, one side overtaking the other side. Perhaps the country fractures into three countries. Maybe the SAF, NCP-dominated SAF, controls those areas of the Riverine Arabs and the, the RSF controls Darfur and the SPLM North controls the Nuba Mountains and the Blue Niles. That's a scenario that could happen. I believe that this is going to be a protracted struggle that is not going to resolve in the next year, maybe not the next two years. Mm -hmm. I believe that these talks that are underway in Saudi are just cover. They're just cover. The Saudis actually are invested, heavily invested in the establishment. Both parties to the conflict have made it clear in their communications that they have no intention to negotiate. They have sent emissaries so that they can say that they're talking, but on the ground, they both said that they don't mind how many people that they have to kill. They don't have, mind how many of their own forces have to die. They don't mind how many civilians have to die. What they want to do is make sure that the other guy is destroyed and they'll destroy everything in their path to get to him. So that's the bad news. Um, but God is working in all of these situations and we don't know what his plans is. Nothing takes him by surprise. In the Nuba Mountains, for a long time, We've known that we have the largest community of believers, and they have been public enemy number one in Sudan because of their identification with Jesus Christ. They are viewed as the biggest threat to the Islamic State. Now, this region where people have voted with their feet and said, we, we do not want to live under Sharia law. We would rather suffer in other ways and even face armed attacks against us but let us have our freedom of worship. In that area now, it's become the only safe haven in the entire country that's not affected by war. So God is using that, and people are fleeing into that area. And the church is playing a role, a courageous role. And as you know, all of us, when we are in trouble and in despair— that's the greatest opportunity that we have to connect with God. And I believe that's happening for many, many, many people. And I believe the church, especially the church in Nuba, in the Nuba believers who are scattered in other parts of Sudan, many of them are playing a really critical and strategic role at this crisis that's happening right now. Are there things that you wish more American Christians understood about what's happening in Sudan? Yeah, I think the, the, the most simple thing is just to remember that we have members of our family that are trapped in Sudan. We have members of our family that are facing some extreme hardship, difficulty, terror, persecution, facing incredible odds, many of whom will not survive today or tomorrow but all of whom are encouraged by the prayers and the intercession and the solidarity with the church outside. VOM has played such a critical role in standing with the church in all of Sudan, especially in the Nuba Mountains and Nuba believers scattered all over the Republic of Sudan for so many years, for so many decades. I remember when I started to get involved in Sudan and the Nuba Mountains, 
It was the same year that a team of uh, from VOM was trapped in the Nuba Mountains and was under attack, a helicopter gunship attack, and they witnessed some terrible things happening. And the solidarity that the supporters of VOM have shown faithfully year after year after year in a crisis that seems never-ending has encouraged so much and has empowered so much the church that right now I think is part of the fuel of the courage of the church now as they as they face this uh, onslaught. Amen. These are members of our family that are going through this time of hardship, this time of war. We always try to finish up, Brad, with helping people to pray. And I I think of that family in Khartoum who's laying under their kitchen table right now to avoid bullets that are flying through their apartment. It's easy to know how to pray for them. Lord, protect them. Give them courage. Give them strength. Are there some ways that you can help us pray more broadly for our brothers and sisters in Sudan right now? All of us need to be able to see God working in our circumstances, and I think we just pray that God will encourage his people. Let him see his hand in their life and in their circumstance, let him let them see the opportunity that God is giving them to represent him to their family, to their neighbor. Amen. Brad, thank you for your long history of serving the people of Sudan and for the passion that you have. And, and it's come through so clearly today, the passion for the people of Sudan. There's a lot of people who are going to pray for Sudan this week. Thank you, Todd. And it's my privilege. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us. As believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, please visit our website at vom.com.au. All donations of $2 and more are tax deductible in Australia. This has been a production of Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecuted.